We will be continuing our series in James called Born Again Behavior. Last week we looked at James's warning against swearing frivolous, dishonest oaths. We learned that the people of God are to avoid oath-taking altogether, and they are to practice radical truthfulness by preaching the whole counsel of God in a loving way, by giving simple yes and no answers, by not being uh, pedantic know-it-alls, and by humbly admitting when we are wrong. The next section in James 5 has been a battleground for interpreters over the centuries as various groups have used it as a proof text for their beliefs. Roman Catholics believe it supports the sacrament of extreme unction, which allegedly gives health and strength to the soul and sometimes to the body to persons who are in danger of death. Extreme unction applies only to Roman Catholics, and it must be administered by a Roman Catholic priest. Faith healers of of every kind believe this section teaches that all sick Christians are guaranteed healing from all physical illnesses. And then most regular Christians, even like us, Uh, use it to promote the concept of physical healing, provided that we follow the steps that are listed here. The trouble with with these and, and many other interpretations is that they do not fit with the actual context and wording. The kind of suffering James has been primarily pointing to in his letter is spiritual, not physical. The believers he wrote to were being persecuted by vicious outsiders, and this took a toll on their spiritual lives. These brother and sister believers were spiritually battered and worn out, exhausted, and it impacted their attitudes and conduct. Now, this is not to say that the the persecution they encountered had no physical impact on them, We just read about how they lost wages and their legal rights in verses 4 and 6. But what James is ultimately concerned about is not their physical health, but their spiritual health and the conduct that flows from it. Now this is made absolutely clear throughout his letter, especially in chapter 1 where he describes things that are associated with their spiritual health like faith, and steadfastness, sanctification, prayer, humility, eternal life, temptation, regeneration, and the implanted word, the gospel, which is able to save their souls. The immediate context, which would be verse 12, reveals this same emphasis on their spiritual health. If they take frivolous, dishonest oaths, the spiritual impact will be devastating as they fall under spiritual condemnation. With the the broader and immediate context before us, James could not have been referring to physical suffering in the next section. As shocking as it may seem, it has nothing to do with relieving or healing physical suffering whatsoever. It is not a a blueprint for physical healing, 
as some, including myself, have suggested. I was actually wrong the other night during our Q&A. I misunderstood the text, and I apologize for my ignorance. Uh, By God's grace, I now grasp it, uh, grasp the fuller meaning of it, or the true meaning of it. This text is about spiritual strengthening, and that is the title of this sermon. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. We will be looking at verses 13 through 18. I'd like to begin by reading the text, praying for God's help, uh, actually before we get to work. So let's go ahead and read it together. This is the next thing James says. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We'll stop right there. Let's pray. Father, we we ask now that you help us comprehend your word just as it is written, that we comprehend the true meaning of it, which I think is absolutely clear in the text if we look carefully enough. And Father, I pray that that you would begin to uh, refresh and rebuild our theology of this text and that we would understand that it is entirely about spiritual healing. And um, it's also a very encouraging text. So we pray that you encourage us this morning with your word. Uh, We pray that you sanctify us with your word. And we pray that you glorify yourself through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last week. And would you please look at verse 13 with me? Again, this is what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? And he says, let him pray. And then he says, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. So the Greek word for suffering is is kakopatheo. It appears in in two other places in the New Testament. We see it in 2 Timothy 2.9. Uh, and we see it in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. And it refers to enduring evil treatment by people, not physical illnesses or something of that nature. It is suffering because of persecution. It is the verb form of kakopatheia, which appears in James 5.10. In verse 5.10, James was pointing to the prophets who had suffered because of evil, disbelieving Jews. 
And now in verse 13, he's pointing to members of his audience who were suffering because of evil, disbelieving Jews. And James instructs these suffering, spiritually downtrodden brothers to pray. Why? Because prayer is essential to enduring suffering. God is the, the ultimate source of comfort, and prayer connects us to Him. And James understood this, and so did the Apostle Paul. Paul suffered greatly at the hands of evil men, and this led him to pray a lot. And God comforted him. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, the, the present tense of the verb suggests a continual pleading with God. So when believers are, are suffering and battered and, and they are weak in faith, they are weary with persecution, they are afflicted, they must pray continually to God for comfort. Now among these suffering brothers that James wrote to, there were some who did not get spiritually worn out. They were not spiritually battered or spiritually fatigued. They experienced the same persecution, the same suffering, but they responded very differently. They were, as James says, cheerful. Now this happens, doesn't it? Two believers experience nasty persecution. One is depressed while the other is happy. And we actually see this in Scripture. When evil Jezebel threatened Elijah, he fled to the wilderness and he had a, a spiritual and emotional mental breakdown. He prayed that he might die. He told the Lord, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. 1 Kings 19 verses 1 through 5. But when Peter and John were arrested by the evil Sanhedrin and, and beaten with rods and warned not to go on preaching the gospel, how did they respond? They rejoiced. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41. Why does persecution and suffering cause one believer to get spiritually depressed and another cheerful? I don't know for sure. There are factors that we would have to consider that we just don't have time for today. It might have something to do with their general attitude or their personality, their experience level, or maybe their understanding of God's promises and word. It seems that believers who go through many trials and suffer a lot tend to handle those things better than those who do not go through them or many of them. Now, to the brothers and sisters who are spiritually downtrodden, pulverized, beat up, and, and depressed because of suffering, James tells them to pray. Pray to God for comfort. And to the brothers and sisters who are going through the exact same things, and yet they are cheerful, he says to them, sing praise. And MacArthur wrote something good here. He says, one is to plead with God for comfort, 
The other is to sing praises to God for comfort given. Now let's go ahead and move to verses 14 and 15. James continues by saying, Is anyone among you sick? And he says, Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And he says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now this is the most misunderstood and disputed portion of this section. At first glance, it seems to be teaching that sick believers can expect physical healing if they call for the elders to pray over them and anoint them with oil. I mean, that's the way that a great many people interpret this text. But as I said earlier, the context doesn't support that kind of interpretation. And neither does the wording. The Greek word for sick is astheneo, astheneo. And this verb appears about 32 times in the New Testament. It is usually translated as sick or ill or weak. And of its many appearances, it refers to physical illness only three times, specifically when Paul's companions, Epaphroditus and Trophimus, were physically ill. Philippians 2, 26 to 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. In its other appearances, it refers to something other than physical illness. In fact, in 14 instances, it refers to emotional and spiritual or spiritual weakness. And that is the meaning here in our text. James is talking about spiritual weakness. So a, a more contextual rendering of verse 14 would be, Is anyone among you weak? That would be the better way to render the verse. And James tells the suffering, spiritually weakened brothers and sisters to do what? What does he instruct them to do? To call for the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders. And what will the elders do for them? They will pray over them and pray with them, and they will anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing in, in Scripture or in the Scriptures is, is really an interesting sort of practice. It, it is usually associated with consecrating or setting apart someone for special service. In this context, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit who indwells and watches over each believer. The applying of oil to the suffering saint is a rich symbolic act setting him, him or her apart to be ministered to in a special way by the Holy Spirit. And when it is applied, the oil is applied by the loving hands of the elders, it is a profound vehicle for comfort and encouragement. Now here's the deal. We need to pay very close attention to what happens in verse 15. The results here of this ritual or act are entirely spiritual. There is zero reference to physical healing here. As the elders pray in faith, and to pray the prayer of faith or to pray in faith means to, to pray while believing that God can and will act. As the elders pray in faith over the spiritually weakened believer, 
three things will happen. Here's what James says. Number one, it will save the one who is sick. Now, this little trinket, little verse does not refer to salvation. Remember, we're talking about believers here. They already have salvation. So this does not refer to salvation. The Greek word for save is sozo, which means to be delivered. And the Greek word for sick is kamno, which means weary, fatigue. The idea here is that God will work through the prayers of the elders to deliver his suffering saint from their spiritual exhaustion. That is the meaning. Number two, this is the second thing that will occur or happen, the Lord will raise him up. The term raise him up in Greek literally means to awaken or to arouse. The idea here is that God will work through the prayers of the elders to spiritually energize his suffering child, his suffering saint. And number three, it says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If personal sin has contributed to or resulted from the spiritual weakness of a battered believer, the elders can pray for them and encourage them to confess their sins. And if they will humble themselves and do that, they will be forgiven and they will be spiritually restored. In other words, that spiritual fellowship they've been enjoying with God, it will be restored. Now, Knowing that we have been forgiven of our sins, that alone can lift our spirits and transform our countenance. It can turn our frown upside down into a smile, right? Amen. Now, as I said a moment ago, the results in verse 15, which we just looked at, they are entirely spiritual. You've got deliverance from spiritual exhaustion. You've got spiritual energizing. And you've got spiritual restoration. And the text is just lucidly or incredibly clear. It does not in any way refer to physical healing. And so the question becomes, how do so many people misinterpret it? I don't know. Up till last week, I had not looked at the original language, nor had I paid close attention to the specific wording. And I had never studied it in its context either. And I would say that if you leave these things out, you're not going to interpret this text properly. And that's precisely what happened to me. And that's probably what's happening with a great many others. In the next line, James encourages all believers to confess their sins to one another and to pray together. Let's go ahead and move to verse 16a. James says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The idea here is that maintaining transparent sharing and praying relationships with other Christians will help keep believers from bottoming out spiritually. One of the worst things that we can do is try to go at it alone and live out the Christian life apart from the body of Christ. And sadly, a great many 
quote-unquote Christians attempt to do this. We are warned in Hebrews 10 not to forsake the gathering. We must stick together, and I understand our circumstances with this COVID-19 situation have messed with that, but I think the Lord is going to change that soon. Listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who was around during the Nazi situation, World War II. He says this, he says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. This is absolutely true. The fact is we need each other. And we need to confess our sins to mature, trustworthy brothers and sisters. And we need to pray with them and pray for them. And I would just simply say, a church that prays together stays together. Now, the healing James points to here is also spiritual and not physical. We know that sin kills, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of it are death. It kills us spiritually. And we know that sin makes the soul sick. But confessed sin has no power to make the soul sick. It has no power to drive us into spiritual depression or exhaustion. If we regularly confess our sins and pray uh, to one another or with one another or for one another, our spiritual health and vitality will remain high. But if we conceal our sins and refuse to pray with one another or for one another, Sin will gnaw at us like cancer, and we will become more and more spiritually sickened or ill. And we could end up like some of the folks in James's audience who needed to call on the elders. An elder prayer meeting and anointing is like a spiritual emergency room. If believers cared for their spiritual lives like they care for their physical lives, they, may, they might not need to call on the elders for spiritual rescue. According to James, we, in this text here, we care for ourselves spiritually by remaining connected and by confessing and praying with and for one another. And I tell you, if we just got in the habit of doing this, it would solve a lot of our problems and it would solve a lot of the church's problems as well. Now, confessing our sins to one another does not replace confessing our sins to God through Christ, our mediator. We are to always confess our sins to God through Christ. We must remember that, that no human being can forgive another's sin. We need to remember that absolution is in the hands of Christ alone. And there is no basis here in this text for the institution of confession to a priest or to some other religious leader. Now, confessing to one another is absolutely secondary to confessing our sins directly to God through Christ. But I would say that it's still absolutely important because it promotes accountability within the church, which is much needed, especially these days. And proper confession between believers will always leave out the gory details of our sin. When we confess to one another, we need to use discretion, and we should share only what is needed. We don't have to go into all the details. We do not want to create a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters, and we can do that by sharing too much. 
to further encourage his readers to engage one another and to pray with each other, James adds an exciting statement in the next line. Let's move to verse 16b. James says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, pay close attention to the wording here. It says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power. What or who is a righteous person? Well, a righteous person is one who is clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ through faith. But that's not all. And a righteous person is also one who exhibits practical righteousness. Now, if we are confessed up. We live confessional lives. We're always confessing our sins before God and to other believers when necessary. And if we are walking with Christ, we are exercising practical righteousness and our prayers have great power. The fourth century preacher and theologian John Chrysostom described the power of righteous prayer in one of his incredible sermons. He said this, he says, The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, alleviated diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Wow, what an incredible set of statements here. Obviously, he's remembering Scripture and how prayer was associated with all of those supernatural, incredible events. Here's the deal, right? That, that's the power of a righteous person's prayer. It has the power to do those th- sorts of things. It has the power to move mountains, as, as Jesus said. But here's the deal. Here's the catch. On the flip side, on the other side of the coin, the prayers of, of morally loose believers have little power, if any. Now, I want you to notice the detail at the end of the verse. It says... As it is working, the righteous person's prayers have great power right at that moment. There is no delay. Great power is manifested as they are praying. And I would just say the omnipotent, right, all-powerful God, He's the one who gives the power. But he gladly sends his divine power as his righteous children make their supplications before the throne of grace. Now, in the last two lines, James gives an example of a righteous person and his powerful prayers. Let's move to verses 17 and 18. And James says this, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
So we can clearly see here the example James gives is the prophet Elijah. James's messianic audience would have remembered Elijah as the man who predicted a drought and the coming of rain, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, who ate from the beaks of ravens, 1 Kings 17, verse 6, who multiplied the widow's meal and oil, 1 Kings 17, 14 through 16, who raised the dead, 1 Kings 17, 21 and 22, who called down fire from heaven, 1 Kings 18, 37 to 38, who slayed the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18, 40, who feasted at the hands of angels, 1 Kings 19, 5, who learned the the secrets of, of God's presence in the caves of Horeb, 1 Kings 19 verses 18 or verses 8 through 18, and who in splendid glory vanished from the earth in a chariot of fire. 2 Kings 2:11. Now, because of his incredible life and ministry, Elijah was and is held in high regard by Jews and by messianic Jews alike. Okay, they they put him on par with Moses and Abraham. And this is why James felt that it was necessary to remind his readers right here in the text of Elijah's humanity and his nature, which is identical to ours. Elijah was not a demigod. Elijah was not a superhuman. He was simply a righteous man. And he was a righteous man who prayed fervently, it says. Now this phrase means that he prayed with great passion or that he prayed greatly impassioned prayers. I would say Elijah was a true prayer warrior. Now of all the incredible supernatural things and events Elijah uh, was associated with, James chose the drought. That's just so interesting to me. Right? And, and, and here's how it played out, sort of. When God revealed to Elijah that he would bring a three-and-a-half-year drought because of Ahab's sin, Elijah prayed for it to come, and it came. And when the three-and-a-half years were over, Elijah prayed for the rains to return, and they returned. I just find it so interesting that of all the incredible supernatural events he was involved in, that James talks about this one. To me, this one is exciting, but it isn't as exciting as calling down fire from heaven onto an altar or slaying the prophets of Baal. I mean, those are fascinating things. Or how about raising the widow's son? You know, bringing somebody back to life. That's pretty incredible. But this is the story. This is the event that James quotes and reminds his audience of. Why? Well, I would just simply say at this point, he had a very good reason for bringing this one up. I want you to think about the context. What has James been talking about here? He has been addressing suffering and the spiritual fatigue and even sorrow that can be associated with it. That's what he's talking about. Now we need to think about the parallels between what he's been talking about and this story involving Elijah. Here are some of the parallels, or here are the parallels 
Think about a drought for a moment here. When a drought occurs, right, there's no rain, there's no water, everything dries up and things start to die, right? The grass withers, the flowers fade, the plants die off, cattle die, and sadly, people die as well so often. Suffering and spiritual fatigue can make us feel like we're drying up spiritually. They can make us, those things can make us feel like we're evaporating, right? What happens when we're going through intense suffering? Um, so often we will say things like, I feel like I'm going through a dry spell. And sometimes we say, I feel like I'm in the desert. Things have just sort of dried up. I, my walk with Christ isn't the same. It's very dry and bland and, and, and seemingly almost non-existent. That's how we feel when we go through these trials and these experiences. You know, the Christian faith and life, is, it's hills and valleys and hills and valleys. And for some of us, it's more valleys than it is hills. But we so often say things like, I feel like I'm in the desert. I'm going through a dry season right now. Aren't these the things that we say they are? Now think about these parallels here. Think about this parallel. In the same way that God brought nourishing rains upon a dry and thirsty earth as righteous Elijah prayed, God can pour his all-satisfying, thirst-quenching grace into our dry and thirsty souls as our righteous brothers and sisters, our elders, as they pray for us. Those are the parallels. Those are the connections. I mean, we can clearly see why James pointed to the drought, right? There are great parallels here. In fact, in my humble opinion, James picked the perfect event from the life of Elijah to cap off this incredible teaching on suffering and spiritual weakness and spiritual strengthening and renewal. You, you couldn't get a better story. Now let's begin to wrap it up here. Closing. Just want to ask you, are you suffering at the hands of others? Or maybe are you suffering some sort of physical malady, an illness, a sickness? Are you feeling spiritually depleted and, and worn out because of your circumstances, because of your suffering? Has it just worn you out spiritually? Do you feel as if you're in the dry land, in the cracked desert? Do you need to be spiritually strengthened? Brothers and sisters, call upon the elders of RHC and we will come. And we will pray over you and pray with you. And we will anoint you with oil. Or call upon your righteous brothers and sisters and confess your sins to them if you have sins to confess. And ask them to pray for you and to pray over you. If you will humble yourself and follow these simple steps. God will pour His grace into you, and you will be delivered from spiritual exhaustion. You will be delivered from spiritual lethargy and, and tiredness. You will be spiritually energized. 
and you will be spiritually restored. That is God's promise to us here in this text. I bid you, I beg of you to take him up on it. Amen.